Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. For our third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, we've decided to do a couple of things that will help in you strengthening your own personal walk with God. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional in the way we present the gospel message. Uh, And we're hoping that through some of these lessons that you will have a desire to grow more spiritually. Uh, And to help us with that, we are going to deal with some tough questions. Uh, In some broadcasts, you'll hear me talking about subjects that maybe even your preacher or uh, Bible class teacher is afraid to, to discuss because of the basically the sensitiveness of that particular lesson. And the second thing that we're doing is we are encouraging people to read their Bible all the way through. And so to help us with that, we are doing surveys of New Testament books. Some of the lessons will be one lesson. Some of them will be uh, two or three or four lessons, depending on the size of the book and the contents. But right now, we want to present to you one of those lessons on a New Testament book. I encourage you to grab your Bible and study along. If you got a notepad, piece of paper, highlighter, that'll probably help as you begin to make notes and think about uh, how you want to read this book from cover to cover. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. So John Mark is the second gospel in our New Testament. And the gospel of Mark has a lot of very interesting things in it. And we are going to, as we did last week, cover as much as we can in this first 20, 25, 30 minutes. And then I'm going to pause, and if you've got Bible passages in Mark, I know Ron's ready. He's at the ready, right? Any passages in Mark that you find of, uh, of question or something that you want to point out a favorite verse, we'll have an opportunity to do that as we close out. <clears throat> so in many of the books of the New Testament, especially letters of Paul, the writer goes to great lengths to explain who he is and why he wrote the book. But with the Gospels, it doesn't always seem that way. Luke does that. We kind of get a taste of what John is doing. But when it comes to Matthew, we said last week his point is to bring across the genealogy to attract the Jews to the message of the Gospel. Mark comes from a completely different standpoint. Mark is writing to a more Roman audience. He does not tell us who he is. He does not tell us the purpose of his book. He just jumps right into it. And that's why for years I've referred to I watched a lot of TV with my grandparents, so forgive me, but the dragnet, you know, the Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. This is the just the facts, ma'am, gospel, okay? John Mark wants to hit the high notes as fast as he can. He gives you no genealogy. He gives you no background to the birth story of Jesus. He doesn't introduce you to John the Baptist. He doesn't introduce you to Herod. He doesn't talk about any of the things prior to the start of Jesus' ministry. And the reason why he does this is because he's young. Uh, we know from learning a little bit about John Mark, he was at a very young age at the time he was first introduced to Jesus, and the first time that we see him interact with Jesus is here in his, his gospel account. So he doesn't identify himself, but it's generally assumed and accepted that John Mark that wrote this book is also the same one that's mentioned in a couple other places in our New Testament. And he gives the impression on us, at least he does to me when I read it, that he wants to give you as much detail in as small a space as possible. He would have been a great blogger, podcaster today, because he knew how to break down his content to, to little chunks and, and send it out to his, his listeners or to his readers. 
He is, by uh, birth, he would have been called Marcus, uh, or Mark, depends on whether you're using his Roman name, or his Jewish name would have been John. Uh, we see this with Peter, where he's called Simon Peter, uh, and he's also called Cephas. Those are different names. The same name, it's just a different language. Like I said last week, if you were to take me to Mexico, it would be Ramon. I'm still Ray, but I would be Ramon. That's what they would say. Um, John Mark is mentioned a few times in the New Testament, and I'll, I'll mention those in a second. The one thing that I want to address about his presence is there's this really weird story in the book of Mark. I mean, Mark's gospel is just, I mean, it's firing on all cylinders. There's all these great stories and illustrations, and he's cutting the parables short. And then there's this really strange story in Mark chapter 14. And if you will entertain me for just a moment, turn your Bible there. I want to read it with you. Mark chapter 14 and verses 51 and 52. To the casual reader of the Bible, you come across this story and you automatically start to scratch your head. So let me set it up. Jesus has just had the Last Supper. He has taken the opportunity to leave from that upper room, which we believe probably was the house of Mary. It's probably the same upper room that they were in when they were ready for Pentecost. But anyways, he's in this upper room. He, he does the Last Supper. He sends out his disciples. Judas is left to go betray him. And in that group, there were more than just 12 disciples. There were other people present that were a part of this little this little group that met and knew Jesus and were so-called disciples, not apostles. And that's where we encounter this particular character in the garden. It says in verses 51 and 52, as Jesus is escorted off by the um, Roman guard, it says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young, man, young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, I don't care who you are, that is an odd story to be in the middle of a gospel account. Why on earth do we need to know about a little kid who literally gets his PJs ripped off of him? Well, this is Mark's way, as, they, as we've seen in history and in the example of, of New Testament or early, or let's say early church fathers, this was Mark putting his stamp on the book. He's saying, I was there. I was an eyewitness to these events. He was young, but he was present. There is absolutely no, there's no prophecy fulfilled in this. I mean, this is two verses in the, you can't unread. Why in the world is it written there? Because John is saying, I was just a kid. He's the son of Mary. He's probably either the cousin or the nephew of Barnabas related to his mother. But anyways, these, these people in this community were very tight-knit. And so he was a family member of other people that were present in that upper room. So he just, he's a young boy, he just follows him to the garden. As you, if, if you were a child, you know, you didn't have your PlayStation, you didn't have a cell phone, you didn't have Dish Network. The only thing you had was the entertainment that was provided by guests. And when the guests leave, you follow with them. You get mixed up in the group. It happened to Jesus in Luke chapter 2. The kids sometimes get along in the group and they kind of sneak out. And so as they do that, he sees the event of Jesus being taken, and he follows closely. I mean, he didn't know really what to do. All the disciples run away, and here he is. He's this little kid, and it says that they went to grab him and literally jerked the linen cloth off, which is his PJs. He's his very thin clothes. And so that's John Mark saying he was in the house, he came with them to the garden, and then he left. And if, if somebody says, well, we don't know that, then tell me another reason why this story's in the book. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Unless he's saying, I'm, I'm that young man. 
Now, John Mark is mentioned ten times in the New Testament, beyond the book that he wrote. Uh, he's obviously infamously remembered in this story, but there are other places. In uh, the book of Acts, we're going to be introduced to the ministry of John Mark. John Mark's presence is there in the first mission trip, and he leaves a little early. For whatever reason, he gets homesick. I think they only visited three cities together, and Paul had this list of all these places he wanted to visit. And uh, when you are a missionary, money is tight, isn't it, Hazel? You come with exactly enough money to be able to give to the workers and to pay for your food or whatever else you need. And you don't come with a lot of spending cash. And so when you have spent all your resources mailing correspondence to people, to Jewish synagogues and to churches that have been established, we're bringing three missionaries. And by the third city you reach... One of them gets homesick, and you have to use the funds for that mission trip to ship him back home on a boat. You'd probably be a little miffed, too, as Paul is. So when they take off, leave John Mark behind, they come back from that first missionary trip, and now John Mark's going, hey, hey, guys, I'm ready to go again. And because of his immaturity, and probably because of the financial risk, Paul says no. Paul refuses to take him. Now, for whatever reason, there seems to be this great contention, this strife between them. Barnabas is saying, yes, he can go. Paul's saying, absolutely not, and Paul gets his way. Paul goes without him, and Barnabas takes uh, John Mark, and they go their own way. Of course, Paul comes back to town. He explains what happened. They pray about it. They fast. They send Silas with him instead, and two great missionary teams are formed. The only reason why Luke follows the story of Paul, because he wrote the book of Acts, is because he was also a companion on that journey. That's why you see the we passages. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. So John Mark and Barnabas did a lot of ministry together, and also John Mark is seen as almost a father-son figure, protege-mentor relationship with Simon Peter. In fact, Simon Peter uses the same phrases that Paul used of Timothy, son in the faith. He saw John Mark as his son in the faith. So, as we read the book of John Mark, we need to remember two things. One, he's related to Barnabas, who is one of the greatest missionaries the church ever saw. And two, he is basically the mentor of Simon Peter, who is one of the most influential figures of the first century church. So he has a lot of connections there. In fact, most people believe that Mark's gospel is based on Peter's teachings. We know that John, towards the latter part of his life, was telling other disciples every story he could come up with so that they would write them down and remember what John had seen as an eyewitness. Same thing is true with Peter, but Peter allows John Mark to use the pen. And it's another reason why it's written to a more Roman audience. That's where Paul uh, is going to die, and that's where Peter is going to die. These are people that are uh, basically of the dispersed, which we talked about that this morning in our class. Uh, they were Jews that had left because of persecution. So John Mark's writing this to a Roman audience, and it may be Jews that were in a Roman culture, sp spoken in their language, uh, and, and giving them an opportunity to hear the, the gospel story. I will say this, and we'll get to it in Timothy later. It has to be said that even though Paul forced John Mark to go away, go back with his uncle or his cousin, whoever he's for, for Barnabas, Later on in his ministry in 2 Timothy, he actually tells them, send John Mark to me. He's profitable in my ministry. So for whatever reason, there seems to be a contention that seems to be relieved later on in Scripture and really outside of the bounds of what we've read in the New Testament. We don't know how it happened, but it seems that Paul 
must have worked out his differences with Barnabas and John Mark. And it was also very hard for Paul to make that decision because if you'll read in Acts chapter 9, it is Barnabas that took him under his wing right after his conversion when he is, I'm not going to say he's disfellowshipped, but it says that the apostles refused him. They would not accept him is the word that's used. They would not let him worship with them and do ministry in the church in Jerusalem. So they shipped him home. And as he's there for years before finally they need a mission work and Barnabas is the one that recalls him. It's not Peter. It's not John. It's not an apostle. Barnabas says, I know a guy that can get the job done. And Barnabas calls on Saul of Tarsus. And as Acts plays out, it says Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And then briefly, Saul and Barnabas. And then ever since that, it's Paul and Barnabas. So Saul had a mentor in Barnabas early on. And, and Barnabas was really leading the team. And there was some point where Barnabas says, you know, I've got to decrease and you've got an increase. And, and maybe, that, maybe that causes a problem with Paul too as to where's John Mark in this? Is Barnabas just going to leave me and put him in? He didn't have a working relationship with him. So John Mark has this awkward place in early church history that he seems to be, you know, he's there. He's not always the most beneficial and helpful. But in writing this book, he probably wrote this earlier than any of the other gospel writings. He probably, when he wrote this, knew that the church needed to accept who Jesus was. And this is a great gospel for him to take when he went on his missionary journeys from that point forward. Because he has written down everything that Peter said, everything that Peter thought. So John Mark is certainly an underappreciated character in the New Testament. He's known, as I said, for his association with Peter, 1 Peter 5.13. And he would have preserved this account. In fact, Mark's gospel is often recurred, uh, referred to in early church writings as Peter's memoirs. So they knew that Peter had some influence in him. The date is probably around 50 A.D. Again, like I said, it's the earliest of the gospel writings. Uh, it could be around 60, but I think he died closer to 60. And I think that book had to be written and, and published at a time when uh, it could be circulated. So it probably was written somewhere around 50 or one of the early 50 dates. Um, it was the first complete gospel written. Let's say that. Uh, also, the, the teachings of Mark, after he writes his book, are going to be explained in more detail in Luke and in Matthew. So basically, Mark writes the bullet points. And Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke would have read Mark's gospel, and they then build on the story. So I think that's an important point. It was not written before. It was written before Matthew, but Matthew obviously comes first in the New Testament because you have to be introduced to the genealogy. The theme is about Jesus as the Messiah. From the very first story in Matthew one until the very end, it, he is giving us. There is no question in his mind, no question to anyone in Palestine that Jesus is the Christ. I was chasing a little rabbit today, uh, for whatever reason. Um, I was looking at the dates that Josephus has written for the time in which he thinks Jesus died and was raised. And Josephus says that Jesus died on April 3rd and he was raised on April 5th. And as he does that timeline, he actually shows, Josephus shows, that uh, the dates coincide with certain other details in John, uh, John the Baptist's story. And so he, he, you know, in a way that kind of that kind of plays out. But he says a couple of things about Jesus. And when he talks about Jesus, he said that if it could be said, 
He was a teacher. He was the Christ. And it has in brackets, the Christ. So this is a Jewish historian who says he knew of Jesus and he would have to admit there was no one else that could fit that title. He is the Messiah. And he says the number of them has not vanquished or perished to this day. There are still plenty of Christians in the time he writes, Josephus writes his book. And so at this time, the church is just getting strength. Mark's gospel would have been a bolt of lightning in the hands and the feet of people who got it because they'd say, come read Jesus' story. Come hear more of the message. Going to the Roman culture uh, would have been a great first start because uh, obviously Romans had a lot of uh, influence in that first century around the world, not just in this part of the world. Uh, so the theme is Jesus is the Messiah, and all the details Mark gives are either right around Palestine or in Jerusalem, uh, and he does that by giving very swift transitions. He doesn't, like the other Gospels say, and Jesus was on his way to here, on his way to there, he passed through here, or John will even tell the names of the hills he's on and the names of the valleys he's walking through. That's not John Mark. John Mark is Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus did that. So there's very swift uh, transitions. And Mark also does an excellent job of using stories to show the military might of the Romans. He's the one who introduces us to some of the centurions. Uh, he's the one who talks about the casting out of demons. Uh, he's the one who talks about uh, heal healing a wide variety of physical ailments that for whatever reason the Romans did not provide good hospitals for the Jews and places where they could get ointments. So he's, he's taking on a political powerhouse in the Romans as he writes this book. He also talks about um, how Jesus was able to calm both emotional turmoil and physical turmoil, whether it be the, 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 um, the waters and the sea and the casting of the demons. But also another thing is when he talks about these things, he shows how Jesus was able to deal with a rational fear. Jesus is comprehensive as the Messiah. He can, he can help you physically. He can help you emotionally. Uh, and he also talks about Jesus as a judge and some of the things about judgment that's seen later on at the end of the book. Uh, as I said, his audience is Roman, probably Gentiles, mostly Gentiles. And so he understands Jewish customs, but he wrote them in such a way that even the Romans could understand it. So he kind of, I don't want to say he dumbed it down, but he uses very simple language in talking about the customs of the Jews. When it comes to Passover, when it comes to Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles, he uses phrases and words that even a simple Roman, and I know that they were well-educated, but they didn't understand culture. Uh, in fact, we're really poor, I will say, in our country about teaching culture. We do not teach culture to our children because we have neighbors that believe totally different set of guidelines that we, we, have, we just don't touch. I lived in a neighborhood once where I had a, a neighbor who was uh, a Catholic and another one behind that was Buddhist, and my immediate neighbor was Hindu. And I took the time to teach my kids what they believe, each one of those groups believe. And uh, it would do us really, I think it does a disservice if we don't teach our children what other cultures believe. It's the same thing with Islam today, just to be honest, is that we, our, our people in our culture see it as just a political power. It's just a caliphate. It's just a political thing. It's not a religious movement. And then you read the, the, you know, the Quran and you say, whoa, wait a minute. You know, there's a whole different backstory. So what John Mark does is he teaches Christianity and Judaism in such a way that it wouldn't offend the Romans. You wouldn't read this book and immediately get mad about Pilate. You wouldn't get mad about some of the things that take place with the, the beating of Jesus uh, towards the end of his life. A lot of that, those details come into other, in other Gospels. 
Another thing, too, that's happening at this time is persecution is coming against Jews and Christians at the time that he writes. This is before the fall of Jerusalem. This is before, way before Masada. This is the time when the Sadducees still have power in the Sanhedrin, and they're somewhat getting along with the Romans. We spent a lot of time on that this morning, about the political power that was going on there with the high priest and so forth. But the traditions that are mentioned by Mark, like, I'll give you a couple examples real quick. One is Simon the, Simon the Cyrene. We are introduced to him by name in Mark's gospel. He's showing that there was someone else there to help with the cross. And, and it shows again that the Romans were somewhat compassionate at that point to let Jesus have help to get to the cross of Calvary. Now, I said that's a little detail, but that's John Mark's way of saying, yes, the Romans were brutal, but they weren't without some compassion. They, and this is the story. We find it in, in John Mark's account. Uh, another one is that the, um, uh, the Roman soldiers would often force people to carry their garments. And so there are a few times in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's where it'll talk about going an extra mile to teaching of Jesus. John Mark, leave that out. He doesn't emphasize the stories that are harsh against the Romans because he, he wants it to be a very uh, applicable book to all nations, and he doesn't want to immediately offend. If you start off the first chapter of your book about how Jesus is the rightful king, like Matthew's gospel does, Romans would have set it aside. They would have said, no, 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 there's no God but Caesar. And so Mark is careful in the way he writes that the Romans would have read it and said, man, this is really interesting. I want to learn a little bit more. And kind of like what Paul does in some of his teaching is he's just trying to grab their attention. And then once he's got them, he'll, he'll hook them. Um, so uh, also, as Jews in North Africa are visiting for Passover, Simon being there shows that Judaism was in other parts of the known world. And so those Jews felt comfortable coming to Jerusalem. If you were really under harsh persecution as a Jew, you wouldn't go back to the temple three or four times a year. You just wouldn't do it. So even in the latter stages of Mark's gospel, he's saying just a few things that the Romans go, okay, because we've been hearing Christians talking bad about the Roman people. In fact, some of them accuse Jesus of trying to overtake the Roman in occupation. And so Mark will show us, you know, that's not what happened. He came in on a colt. They were laying down palm leaves. Uh, his story, even though it's the same story as it's told to the other gospel accounts, He's very careful in his consideration of Roman soldiers and Roman people. Um, another one, too, that's emphasized, well, with Simon the Sorcerer, let me say this, too. Simon the, or Simon, Simon, Sorcerer, Simon the Cyrene has two sons. One is Alexander, the other is Rufus. They're mentioned in Romans 16, 13. So this guy would eventually become a Christian, or if he didn't, at least his children became a Christian. And so that plays out through the rest of the New Testament. So a Roman could relate to these stories. They could understand the, the motives behind it and the teaching of Jesus. There's nothing that you're going to see Jesus say in Mark that would have offended the Romans so greatly they put the book down. And that takes a careful tongue, doesn't it? Because there are times that we want to tell people exactly what they need to hear, and they need to hear it. But we have to teach in love. We have to be very careful. So he is very careful and considerate in the way that he approaches the people. Um... Let me go through a few of the texts that I think we need to, you got a highlighter, you can mark these. These are, these are some that are of major influence. And I'm going gonna, gonna to pause here on one in just a second because I think it's probably the most, I don't say the most important, but it is the turning point of the book. In uh, Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read two verses with you, verse 11 and verse 17. 
And I've got another new Bible tonight. I'm breaking in different Bibles to see which one I like the most. Um, so verse 11, it says, uh, And immediately, verse 10, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then verse 11, a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Mark's gospel begins with the baptism of Jesus and of him having the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. So he doesn't need to give you a bunch of uh, prophecies. Matthew does that, and that's great. And there are certain people that address that audience is good. I like history. I love to read textbooks. I love to read historical books. He starts by saying, hey, look, when Jesus is baptized in the wilderness, God himself said, listen to him. Next story. And so you are automatically grabbed by attention Matthew takes three chapters to work up to it. Mark starts right there. Hey, Jesus is there. John the Baptist. Who's John the Baptist? You don't need the backstory. Just listen. John the Baptist is there. He baptizes Jesus. The Spirit descends like a dove. And then immediately Jesus goes and begins his ministry. Now, we begin to read in the other Gospels about the, the, the length of the temptation in Matthew and in Luke. Mark just moves right on with the story. And I think that's, that says a lot of him. And then verse 17, later on, he's going to call his fishermen. And this is, or call his fishers of men, sorry. It says, when Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So he, as he begins his Galilean ministry, it doesn't tell us all about the temptation and the Sermon on the Mount. And all that stuff. Uh-uh, baptize, let's get to work. And so those stories are there. Mark just doesn't tell them. Because if you were to tell every story, John says, you couldn't, the world couldn't contain the scroll that, that was written. So... We have to be careful. That's like me. I've got an hour to, to give you the whole gospel of Mark. I don't even have an hour. I have 30 minutes. You know how hard that is? 16 chapters. It's awesome. Um, but I'm trying to give it to you in a, in a concise way, and that's what Mark does with his gospel, is just give me the facts. Uh, so verse 17 shows that Jesus is calling his disciples. Now on down to verse 38, same chapter. Uh but he said to them, let us go up to the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I came, have come forth. Uh, Mark's showing that Jesus is going from city to city, doing good works. He didn't leave certain people out. It's not like, as some thought, Jesus is always in Jerusalem, stirring up trouble at the temple. And that's one of the reasons they wanted to kill him. John Mark says, no, he was everywhere. And he'll show that as he talks about Tyre and Sidon and some of these other cities, Phoenician individuals that were coming from different places hearing about Jesus, and so he's all over the map. He's not just in Jerusalem poking the Jews. And so um, that, that kind of plays off, too, as you read through. By chapter 3, uh, he's now having some conflicts with the Pharisees, and that also would be an interest of, to the Romans because they say, well, we can't stand the Jews. We have to kind of tolerate them. Well, Jesus did, too. He couldn't stand them. He just kind of had to tolerate the Pharisees. So if you're a Roman, you're going, I kind of like this guy. You know, he, he's, getting, he's having to put up with all this nonsense. Maybe he's going to teach him a lesson. So as you keep reading through into chapter 5, 4 and 5, he starts the parables and the miracles, and they are short, little tidbits of information. These are like tweets going down through reading it on Twitter. It's very quick. This happened, this happened, this happened. And with the miracles, he takes a better part of 4 and all of 5 to show Jesus doing these particular, particular things. And then his followers are being compelled to go out. Of course, they're being given the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll say limited. 
power of the Holy Spirit to do some special things. And, uh, and so he talks about that just a little bit. Now I want you to move to chapter 8. And we'll um, focus on verse 22 and following. Jesus has just fed the uh, 4,000 at this point. Uh, he has uh, dealt with the Pharisees saying, we want a sign, give us a sign. He's like, I just showed you a sign. It's like your kids, you know, they ever do that to you? I've told you a thousand times. Well, could you just tell me one more time? No. Jesus repeatedly does these miracles, and they go, okay, Jesus, one more. Just one more. Just one more. It's like, I need five more minutes. I just need one more hour. Can I stay up one more hour? Same thing with the Pharisees, and he's just done. It's interesting that Mark chooses to choose the very next story in uh, verses 13 through about verse 21 that uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, the, the, the harshness and the hypocrisy of a small, listen to me, of a small group of believers affects the image of everyone from that religion. Same is true today. All it takes is a handful of Christians to say or do a bunch of nonsense to give all of Christianity a black eye. So John Mark is showing to the Romans as they're reading this, Jesus did not like the way that the Pharisees treated other people. He didn't like the way they treat. In fact, he'll even say to them when they try to, to question him about religion, and they start to question him about the Romans, he'll say, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God's. He was not there to start a political uprising. He was there to come and to die for all of humanity. So, so John Mark is showing by Jesus' teaching and Jesus' actions, he's not there to take over and kill all the Romans. In fact, the opposite is true. If it were not for the Roman culture, Christianity would have taken much longer to spread across the world. And I mean, when you look at the Roman roads, when you look at the Roman educational system, when you look at the way that the Romans sent and retired their generals and political officials in different cities, those are the places where Paul did ministry. Where these older men, who were well thought of and well respected by everyone, he would go to their cities and he would teach them. It's like going to the retirement communities. And then people loved these older people. And there's even centurions that are out building synagogues. Why is that? Because there were a handful of Christians that were giving a good impression of Christianity and at the same time, Judaism, even though it's not a branch of Judaism. And so Christianity was good for everybody, but it could not have happened unless we had the environment with the Roman power. So Jesus comes at the perfect time between the languages, between the roads, between the, the, the cities that were established, uh, all of that, the, the educational system, the libraries, it's amazing. And, and Jesus was able to, and the disciples were able to, use even the synagogues and some of the, the giant uh, buildings that were purchased or used, libraries and such, by the Romans to use coliseums to use to preach from. Who would have ever thought that was possible, to be able to have a place where you could get together? Why is, why is Mars Hill happening in the book of Acts? That's all because of the Roman culture and the introducing new gods. And so Paul gets on this pagan lectureship, and he gets up and preaches one of the best sermons that he has ever preached in Acts 17. None of that would have happened had it not been for the environment Jesus was born into and Christianity came uh, to fruition. Then we get to, to uh, Mark 8. I've got to wrap this up. So Mark 8, there's this really interesting story that is in the dead center of the book. And I believe this is the pinnacle, this is the, this is the ground by which we're going to trod through the rest of the book of Mark. 
you're going to have to make a decision. Is Jesus the Christ or not? Is he just a good man who did good things, or is he the Son of God? Is he the Messiah? Here's the story. It says in verse uh, uh, 27, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the town of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Some said, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them uh, that, that no one should tell them, about him. No, anyone about him. Now, how many of you heard that story, right? We know that story. We know from Mark 16, Matthew 16. We just studied Luke's uh, version of it just, what was it, last week or two weeks ago? Do you know what happened before that? What happened before Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Who am I? Back up, we'll see. Beginning at verse 22. He came to Bethsaida. This is the story John Mark said happened directly before this. And they brought a blind man to him, and he begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Now, awkward? Are we there yet? John uses awkward points to teach a lesson. He'd have been a great youth minister, okay? He uses this, he spit on his eyes, and he says, what do you see? And he says, well, I see men like trees walking. Newsflash. Jesus half heals him. He half heals him. I thought Jesus had the power to heal. Then why does he half heal him? Keep reading. Then he put his hands on his eyes again, second time, and made him look up. Interesting. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into town nor tell anyone in town of the events that happened. Okay. Does Jesus have the power to heal? Absolutely. Can he heal? Uh, he, there's no question he could have healed the guy first shot. Why does he take two times at it? The first time is to grab the attention, not of the man present, but the disciples that are present. Who do you see when you look at me? Who do men say that I am? And then you're going to have to make a decision. So the problem is with the the disciples at this time is they see very dimly who Jesus is. They have an image, but who am I really? Can you see me clearly? And then he uses the same words that he uses in the very next story. Go into town, don't tell anybody. When Peter declares he's the Christ, what does he say? Well, just don't tell anybody. The story of the man blind having taken him two shots to figure out who he is, is basically a prophecy that upon the death of Jesus, even his disciples still were unsure as to what his moves were. They were still unsure as to whether or not he was the Messiah. And even though Peter says, you're the Christ, where's he at at Calvary? He's crying in the corner like a scared little girl. Sorry. Peter runs. Every disciple runs except for John. They had a dim view of who Jesus was. So Jesus uses this miracle as a parable-like story in real life that they could not see clearly who Jesus was. Does that make sense? I think that's the reason why it's in the dead center of the book. Because from this point, he's going to say, if you believe me, if you believe me. He'll say, if, you, if you've seen the Father, you have know, seen me, you've seen the Father. He begins to teach about the Holy Spirit and the Gospel of John. And all it is is a reminder that if you trust me, if you see me for who I am, then 
there's, there's a great ending to the story. And then, oh man, so many great stories in the Gospel of Mark. Of course, you end with the, uh, end with the Great Commission when he says, go and preach, tell, tell as, as Matthew says, go tell all the nations. He says, preach the Gospel to every creature, uh, he that believes and is. What? He believes and is? Baptized, that's right. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not will be condemned. And that's how Matthew ends his account is of them being sent out to go. So when you read the book of Mark, you put it down and you go, let's go get them. Let's get out to work. Thank you for tuning in to the Ray Reynolds Wrap Podcast, and specifically this study of New Testament books. If you have a specific Bible question that relates to the material we just covered, please feel free to email me that at rayreynoldswrap at gmail. We want to encourage you to tune into every broadcast, follow us on social media, and get regular updates on the content. Follow, subscribe, share, and set your notifications so you don't miss any broadcasts or blogs that are posted. Check out the website for free books and Bible study materials at rayreynoldsrap.com. Hope you have a wonderful day, and may the Lord bless you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational, it's based on the Bible, it's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.